Good morning. All right, good morning again. I know you know who I am as you're sitting here before me, but for those joining us online, on the radio with KFUO, 850 AM, I'm Pastor Kevin Thompson, and I am excited to be here because this is my first time getting to teach Bible class with you in person again. So good, so good to be here. For those who are here, by the way, I said it once, but I'll just briefly mention it. There is a Bible cart in the back next to the usher stand there. Again, I believe those are completely safe to use. I do not think there's any risk of getting sick because they're not used for anything else except for Sunday. So there's plenty of time in between to become clean, if you will. So there's a Bible, but no other handout. Before I get any further, please, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you have given us another new day. You've woken us this day to serve you in your kingdom. And Lord, you know the ways and you know the times. So Lord, may you use us to give you honor and glory. May you use us to share your word and our faith with other people. But now, Lord, especially, may you join us together in your Holy Spirit, whether we're here in person or wherever it might be, Lord, that together we are in your word and we may be strengthened by your word. So we pray these things and all things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So as we typically do for this class, we will be looking at the lectionary readings for next weekend. Kind of got, there's kind of a lot going on right now. This weekend, we're here at St. Paul's in the Pair observing Reformation Day. I love the red. see a lot of red out here. Uh, so this weekend, observing Reformation Day. But next weekend, it's very timely. It actually works out for once where we will have All Saints Day fall right on Sunday. So today, as we look at our Bible study and study God's Word, we're going to be looking at the readings for All Saints Day. Uh, the one side note is it's going to be a little bit odd for me just like mentally because next weekend when I get to preach on Saturday evening at our service, I'm going to preach here about all, on All Saints Day and the like and then run home and go trick-or-treating with my kids. <laughs> Just like a we that's just to me a weird balance of like, you know, church, All Saints Day, and then Halloween. Um, but anyways, next weekend we'll observe All Saints Day. So before we get into the readings, just a couple of notes, and I'll really bring these out more as we get into the readings. All Saints Day. To me, as I've studied and, and, and focused on it myself too, that there are really two focuses for All Saints Day. The one, the lesser of the two, it, the focus is remembering those whom we loved or who we still love, who have passed and gone before us in the faith. So those who have died. And that is, I do believe, part emphasis of All Saints Day, especially here at St. Paul's, what we'll observe, as we typically do in worship, is the tolling of the bell. Where, simply because of the size of our congregation, we only go through the, the deaths in the past year, but we'll read off the names of all those in our congregation who have passed in the last year, and each time tolling the bell. So that is part emphasis, but I, I, say that in, I say that that's the lesser of the two emphases because the stronger emphasis, the one that should prevail, is the hope we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And not just us, but all the saints, right? All saints, and, and here we get this whole term of saints, and I know that those of you who are sitting here with me, you know what I'm saying when I, mean, when I say saints. The saints are the believers in Jesus Christ. Right? All those who believe in Jesus Christ will be raised from the dead one day. And I'm going to talk about this more as we get into Revelation. But again, the focus is on that resurrection from the dead. 
I actually heard an interesting commentator. We'll leave his name out of this. Uh, he, he would talk to you about it in person. But we'll leave his name out of it for now. And that He talked about he struggles going to church sometimes. Again, he's a commentator, so he's steeped in theology. But he struggles going to church on All Saints Day because sometimes there's, so, there's too much focus put on those whom we uh, have lost and what's going on with them now. The focus on All Saints Day is not the, uh, what's happening with our loved ones now, but rather the focus is the resurrection from the dead. What will happen for all the saints, all the believers in Christ one day? But enough of that. Let's get into the scripture. So the first reading for All Saints Day is Revelation chapter 7. We're going to read verses 9 through 17. But some, um, some places, because the lectionary does include it as a possibility, uh, includes verses 1 through 8. But we will just be for our purposes and here in our worship services reading Revelation 7, verse 9 through 17. First, we'll read that for us. God's word says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Here ends our reading for next weekend. Raise your hand if you've heard this one before. Right? I think everyone's hand here could have been up. Right? Most of us, especially being in in our congregation, and, and for you, because you've been in the church for many, many years, we've heard this one before. So my guess is I may not say anything super strikingly new. But again, we go back to God's Word, and even when we hear those familiar passages, we hear something else that God has for us each and every time. So, familiar passage, but let's look at this and, and make sure we, I'll hit what I consider highlights of it. Look, we, and John sees this great multitude from every nation, but before we get to this great multitude of every nation, I skipped over verses 1 through 8. I do want to mention... That verses 1 through 8, if you go back and read them, describes more so the church on earth. Or we also call it the church militant. Because the church is on earth still fighting against the devil and sin and death. And so verses 1 through 8 describes the church militant, the church on earth. And then you get to 9 through 17. And you get to the church in heaven. The church triumphant. Right, triumphant because the victory, the, the final and certain victory is theirs. Again, we as is living in this world right here now, we know that victory is ours through Jesus Christ. We also don't fully have that victory yet. That victory in its fullness is not yet ours. We can't yet realize the fullness of it. 
This stuff described in verses 9 through 17, we haven't seen it yet. Right? Maybe there's a moment where um, you feel like you experience some of the comfort and grace and, and blessing of God. And that's great, and we should. But in 9 through 17, that is not yet experienced. Because 9 through 17 is describing the church in heaven that we have one day. Then the resurrection of Jesus Christ we will have. And it's yours. But one day we get to experience it. So we look at this and we see here what uh, most people typically uh, point out, but it's so important to remember. It says there, what's this multitude, verse 9? A great multitude that no one could number. Now, if you think about this, it's so many. And one of the words I heard in commentary I really picked up on this time is that God's what he has for his people, for his saints, is so universal. So universal. But it's also so individual. I want to keep those words in our minds today. So universal, but also individual. And here we have this universality of it. That it's a great multitude, so much so that no one could number. Now, if I say that phrase in a different way, no one could number as in countless. Does that ring a bell for any Old Testament stories? Right? That the descendants, the people of faith, the God's people should be countless. Promise to Abraham... You're thinking of it, right? That God says to Abraham, I'll make your nation great. You'll have so many descendants, you can't even number them. Look up at the stars in the sky. They'll be countless. And here, in, we have in heaven this description, what he said is true. <laughs> Again, we believe what God says is true, but we have yet another time in his word he shows us, I say this, and this is what will happen, and this is true. He says all the way back in Old Testament, I'll make you countless, I'll make so many people into my nation. And here he goes in Revelation saying, this is going to be true, it's going to be fulfilled. So they're countless. Right? And then we go on from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. And again, I think this points to the universality of it. It's all people. Right? It doesn't matter what they look like or fill in all the descriptions. It's all nations, tribes, peoples, and languages because that's how universal God's love is for the world. He wants all people to be in this beautiful, victorious picture. And here it says, then it goes on in verse 9, they're standing before the throne, before the Lamb. They're clothed in white robes. I know you've probably heard it before, but we remember that that white shows us that purity, that righteousness. Now, here at St. Paul's, I know those listening can't quite, um, maybe haven't seen it, but have you ever noticed what's on our baptismal font at St. Paul's in De Pere? The, the, for lack of better terms, pictures on the side of it? Have you seen them? Did you know there's a white robe? Well, it's not white, it's wooden. Have you noticed there's a robe on one side of our baptismal font? Next time, look at it. It might be on the back side. You might have to do a little circle around it. But if you look at our baptismal font that we have at St. Paul's, there are four, on four different sides of it, different images carved into the wood. So it's still wooden color. It's not different colors. But one of those is a robe. Because where do we get our white robe of righteousness? But through Christ and in baptism. And here, again, it's talking about in, in Revelation, in this picture of the triumphant um, church, clothed in white robes, because it comes because through the blood of the Lamb, of Jesus Christ. And then it says they're waving those palm branches. Now remember, palm branches were a symbol of victory, especially in um, biblical times. 
So even for kings, let's, let's set alone the, the religious and, and the spiritual for a second. Just more from a secular, earthly perspective, palm branches would have been considered a sign of victory. I think of when we most often think of palm branches in our church. Palm Sunday. Thank you for shouting out through the mask. I know it's challenging. But I heard you, right? Palm Sunday. Which is really, if you think about it in some ways, uh, oh, I can't think of a better word, but ironic is the best word I can think of. Right? Jesus rides in, they're waving palm branches, and yet he's about to die on the cross. But then also, wait, when we look at that, we see that his death was not him losing. It was his victory over sin, death, and the devil. That's just a beautiful thing all tied together. So, they're waving their palm branches and they're crying. Now, here's what I want you to notice about this. Think about this. Look in the, look in the scripture again. What were the people saying? Or more so, to put it another way, who were they talking about? Think about this. When you look at this scripture and you look at their song and their praises, who are they talking about or what are they saying? It's all about God. It's not about themselves. And I, just, I bring that up in part because of today being observance of Reformation Day. Again, not to... Um, be, speak ill of anybody else, but especially Reformation Day, right, is all about the fact that it's not about us and what we do in our works. It's all about God and what He has done. And this is the similar, similar thing that here in the Scripture is when we get into heaven, it's not going to be, God, look at me. I was great. Look at all I did. It's all about God. That God, your sal- salvation belongs to you. And it goes on to the Lamb. God, you're seated on the throne. And then if you skip over to verse 12, they say, Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might be to our God. I know I kind of shot that out of my mouth real fast, right? But if you think about that real slowly, that is just such a complete, beautiful picture of the praise that is due to God. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, and might. Those who are sitting here, how many fingers did I put up as I counted those? Seven, right? Again, we want to be careful with Scripture and and, and numerology, the study of numbers in Scripture. We don't want to read too much into numbers. But I think there also are times where God shows us things, and He shows that He uses this description, the seven being a number of completeness. Right? God created creation in six days. On the seventh day, He rested. Complete. And we see this other places in Scripture as well. So complete glory and power is deserved to God and to Christ. And so I kind of got into that second. So to me, there's, there's, there are really three tiers I, wanted, I, I think we can look at this passage. One, the first is, what's it look like? Who's part of the triumphant church? Who's part of heaven? The second part, which I already started to get into, is that uh, kind of what does it look like? What's going on there? But more specifically, the hymn of praise that they're singing. Right? And I, I talked about that in verse 12, the blessing, glory, wisdom, and on from there. They're giving this praise. Now, again, pop quiz. Now, I don't know if the other pastors do this, but I'm going to keep quizzing you, testing you. Uh, anyone know where this is also then sung in worship? This hymn of praise, can anyone think of? Because we sing these words in worship at St. Paul's. I'm sure other congregations do as well. Before communion, and the, the one I was most popular thinking of, Kim, is before in, in the Tadeum. In the Tadeum, sing it. Right? So, my point is, is, I bring that out because we look in, in worship, what we do in worship is all scriptural, and that fact that 
we here, the saints on earth, still now in the militant church, the church on earth, still fighting against sin, death, and the devil, we too get to sing that hymn of praise to God. That one day, we will be forever singing. That's a beautiful foreshadowing. So, second part really is this hymn of praise. Now I think we can get to the third part. And again, this is my delineation. Other commentators, probably far more experienced than I, have different ways to divide this. But to me, then, it came to this third main area of of description here. In verses especially 15 through 17. Right? Now, what's going on there in 15 through 17, I think, again, gives us a great, beautiful picture of what's happening in the church triumphant, in the church in heaven. Look in verse 15, it says, Therefore they, the ones in white robes, the ones who have been made righteous, given heaven to, um, forever by God, they are before the throne of God, verse 15, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. So what's heaven like? Right? The infamous question that people always want to know, what's heaven look like? I don't know. Right? We know a little bit. We know it's serving Him day and night. Now, think about that word, serve. If I say the word, no, not in this context, but if, I, if you're out in your daily life, you're talking when someone says, well, I need you to do something for me. I need you to serve me. That word serve typically has a, probably more negative connotations, right? I don't want to serve you. No, I was a server for many years, so I didn't think of it very bad. I, I loved serving, and we should not think ill of those who are servers, right? It's a fine thing, it's a good thing, it's a needed thing, but typically the connotation of serving someone else is more negative, right? Because our prideful human being, we don't want to humble ourselves to serve others. So I think it has simply that connotation, but here that's not at all what we have. It's a beautiful thing to serve God. One of the best things that we get to do. And what does that look like? I don't even know. I mean, because again, we think of serving, I think of waiting tables like I did at Chili's. I love Chili's still to this day, by the way. Um, that's completely unrelated to this Bible study. But we think of serving God, and it's not just like bringing Him food. It's being in His presence. It's giving Him honor and glory. And again, I don't even think we can fully comprehend with our minds what that's like eternally. Because we're still in this world, this fallen world. And we're also human. So our human limitations limit us on like, well, what is it really like to serve God night and day for an eternity in perfect goodness? I don't think we can fully know that until we get there. And then the next go on, it goes on. And this is, again, I think we can skip over it um, just because it's too easy in our English language. But verse 15, what does it tell us that eternal life will be like? It'll be with him. He who sits on the throne will shelter them in his place. Shelter them. Now, the more literal that you can get from the, the Greek here is tent them. Think back in Old Testament. What was the big deal about the tent? What did the tent r- remind the people of, the people of God? Can you say it louder? The tabernacle, thank you. These masks are so challenging, but you're with me, right? The tabernacle. And when God was, in, with the whole deal with the tabernacle is that was where God said, this is where I am. Where worship happened, where, his, his, where he, he promised them, this is where I am. You could even go a little more literal if you really want to. Instead of saying tent with them, you tabernacle with them, right? Because it means that his presence is with them. And to have God's presence is peace and joy and comfort and hope. It's just perfect. So what's it like? It's serving God. It's being in his presence. And then we get these last verses. There's no more hunger, no thirst, no sun, no scorching heat. 
And as it says at the end of verse 17, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And here is where I think we get into more of that individual application of, of heaven, right? As I said before, it's very universal and yet individual. Um, because here it talks about very much the individual needs that we have typically on this earth, and yet they're completely filled and they're not needs anymore at all. Now here's something, again, I find it amazing. You can read this stuff over and over and you never notice something until the next time you notice something new. I never noticed until my, last, my reading of this most recently. Look at verse 17. The lamb in the midst of his throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water. Does that make you think of any very, very commonly um, popular scripture verse? A psalm? Psalm 23! I didn't notice this until this, just this last week. I'm... My, my mind was blown, right? But Psalm 23, it was so common, so popular. We use it at almost every funeral here at St. Paul's. It's very commonly requested by people at, for their funeral. Right? The, the, the Lord guides us, and you have in the Old Testament this psalm, and yet here in Revelation, talking about the eternity, He is their shepherd, as He told before. And not only is leading them to, the, to eternal water, but there's no more hunger, no more thirst, no more needs. He's just with them. The shepherd has the full, complete picture. And then the last verse uh, is, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And you think about tears in Scripture, and um, quite frankly, I'm going to be honest, I don't want to get into this one too much, because I'm hoping to do that next week in the message, so we'll, we'll focus on that. Um, but the tears, right? And this one commentator, commentator says something that I really appreciated. Tears precede joy. In our Christian context, right? As Christians... Tears precede joy. Now, okay, I know there are happy tears, right? I'll admit, there have been times where I laugh so hard. Actually, last time my in-laws were here, we were, it was like way too late. I think it was probably, I was just like slap, slap silly, right, when you get to up too late. And I remember I was laughing so hard that I was crying, actually. So I get that, like, there can be tears of joy, right, tears of laughter. But generally speaking, right, tears are associated with sadness and crying and mourning, which is the context here. Um, but... As Christians, with this hope in Christ, we have tears. We have tears in this life, in this world, as long as we're here on this earth. But those precede joy. Because we know that even though we have them, what comes next as we get through those is the joy we have in Christ. It's also why I always tell people at funerals, they, they either, you know, I'm talking with someone and they're crying and maybe even sobbing a little bit un- uncontrollably. They say, I'm sorry. I'm like, don't be sorry. What, there's nothing to be sorry about. You're crying. Death is terribly sad. Right? Shortest verse in the Bible. What is it? Jesus wept. Right? Why did he weep? Because his friend died. He's Jesus. Did he know that he was going to raise him from the dead? Yeah. And yet he, he cried too. As Christians, do we know that Christ will raise us from the dead? Yeah. And yet we cry too. Right? Crying is not necessarily a bad thing. But crying, I think as Christians, remember tears precede joy. Ruth? Yeah. Yeah. So, just to repeat. For, yeah. Let me to repeat a little bit for those who are listening. You got the joy. You're talking about at the, in the psalm with the the harvest, and then later, or there's the tears in the morning, and then later comes the joy, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and I don't know which psalm that is. Right. 
But you have that contrast, right? Is what you bring. And we see that all throughout Scripture. That there's the mourning and the joy. And we were just looking at um, St. Paul's in the study of Esther, right, for our Living Way Bible study. And Esther, the whole concept in Esther is essentially there's great mourning turned to joy, right? And that's not to be oversimplistic, but that's what God does for us, right? Right. Right, exactly. The, the weeping and the fasting and the, the mourning then turns into joy, right? All right, any questions about Revelation? Okay, the Revelation that we're talking about. If I say question about Revelation, who knows where we could go, right? Uh, one last thing I will say about it before we move on is just, and I, as I make that comment, you think about Revelation uh, has a lot of challenging things to understand, if you will, right? And and a lot of, and there are many parts in Revelation that can be, for lack of better terms, kind of scary, right? We talk about tribulation or, or different things like that. But really, you look at it and you see the reading we have right here before us. That's a beautifully comforting passage of Revelation. So, um, key word is, as we spend time studying Revelation, understand it better. Let's go on to our second reading for All Saints Day next weekend. We will be reading 1 John chapter 3. So next weekend for All Saints Day... 1 John chapter 3, just the first three verses. I'll read those for us. Again, God's word says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what will, we will be has not yet appeared, but we will know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And here ends our reading for next week. So, three short verses. So, hopefully my time spent on this will be uh, proportionate. But we look at this and we see uh, that really there's kind of two groups, and it's not explicitly stated in words, but you really have a, a pretty stark contrast here between believers and unbelievers. Right? It talks about those who are God's children, um, not knowing Him and knowing Him, not being called, but being called by Him. Um, and then those who hope in Him versus those who don't. Again, it's not extremely explicit, but it's there. See this contrast. And I, I want to bring this, if we tie, right, for All Saints Day, you've got that, that great, beautiful picture of, of heaven and the church triumphant is all those who believe in Him. And so here... We've got a passage talking about, again, belief in Christ and the, the hope that we have. But look at this in verse 1. It says, see, of course, that's, that's not talking about literally, <laughs> because it's just more of a um, in the mind and in the heart kind of scene. But here's what I like. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. And that what kind of love is, is a great expression. You could even say it, um, how glorious, how wonderful, or how awesome. I don't know if, have I given my excursus on awesome in this class recently? Great, I'll do it. If I, if I have, it's a repeat. So I was teaching Bible class the other one, and uh, certain someone still gives me a hard time because of this, the use of awesome. But I was once told by uh, a mentor in, in the church, he said, he said, Kevin, you use the word awesome way too much. Because I say, oh, that's awesome, right? You say that all, all, all the time. And he finally told me, he said, you use it way too much. He said, awesome should only be used for God. Because who is truly awe-inspiring, who brings awe, who, who makes awe? God. So from then on, I was super conscious of whenever I use the word awesome with him. 
if I want to get under his skin, I may still use the word awesome intentionally. But I don't think, I don't think that's, is that sinful? I, I don't know. Well, I'll have to go to confession later. But my point is, is we have here, it says, what kind of love, how awesome, how glorious is his love. The love that he's given to us. And what has his love done for us? Verse 1 goes on to say that we should be called children of God. And children of God, I'm not going to get too deep into it here because we've talked about it before, but to be a child, to be an heir, is all the beautiful um, perfectness of what that relationship should be. A cared for, loved, provided for child. A child that inherits every beautiful thing that the parent has to give. We are called children of God. And another word to emphasize there is called. It means God did it. He called us children of God. We didn't work our ways in. We didn't get it there. We didn't say, I want that, so give it to me. It's simply God calls us. He gives it to us. Again, we could have this whole other, another excursus on baptism. Because when were you called the child of God? When he marked you with his word and water. He said, you're mine. My favorite part of that verse is that what kind of love does God have? He has a love that we should be called children of God and so we are. Those last four words there. So we are. You are. It's not, well, maybe I will be. Maybe I am. I don't really know. God loves me, so he says I can be a child of God, but we'll see if I can, you know, keep that status. You are. It says right here, and so we are. See what kind of love the Father has? He calls you to his children, and he makes it so, and it's true. And I think that is so comforting, especially when we go on in the world and there are many people in our world who oftentimes are, are just faced with this burden of guilt and uncertainty. They wonder, well, does God really love me enough? Uh, will I really be good enough to get into heaven? Do I really have these promises? I mean, God says I have these promises, but are they really mine? Like, at what point do they become mine? They are. God's called you each his child, and so you are. Probably would be a whole sermon on that, right? get a little bit excited there, as you can tell. But God says that it's true. And then we go on and it says, verse 2, Beloved, we're God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Again, I get into that whole discussion on it's not yet appeared. You're already His children, but what will be has not yet appeared. Back to Revelation. That perfect, made new creation is not, tr- is not yet appeared. We don't know what it will fully be like. We have some descriptions, but what 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 will be has not yet appeared. But we know, it goes on, that when he does appear, we'll be like him. And we'll see him as he is. And everyone thus who hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So again, we have this beautiful uh, resurrection hope in Scripture. That God is again telling us Christ is going to come back. And we get to see him face to face, be with him, dwell with him, and we get to be his forever. We'll be made pure forever. So again, on All Saints Day, obviously fitting because the people putting the lectionary together did a lot of work on this, right? But fitting reading because, again, we're here. Saints in this world here and now. We are already his children. We are already saints. And one day... We'll be reunited with all those whom we love, especially, and those whom we don't even know, but all who believe in Christ, and we'll all be made righteous together forever with Christ. Any questions on those three short verses? Yeah, fix that. Yeah. 
Right. Yeah, I don't know what passage that is, but again, like you're saying, just to repeat, that the we, we, we don't see fully now yet, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. I'm working on that whole recall, right, to quote the, the, the chapters or verses, but yeah. This is good. We have a lot of time left because we have a very important passage left. Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is the gospel reading for All Saints Day next weekend. The first 12 verses. Okay, I'm going to tell me off the... Well, you've already flipped there. Maybe you're being resourceful. What, what's that reading? Beatitudes, right? How many of you have heard the Beatitudes? Right? Again, every hand probably could be up. But, and those listening online, most of us have heard the, these, these, uh, the Beatitudes, this word from God before. But again, we hear God's word, we see what he has for us. And not that I'm saying you do this, but a lot of times there's, there are misconceptions and, and challenges that people misread the Beatitudes. Uh, in part, I think, because the Beatitudes are a very com- commonly quoted part of scripture by the world. Right? If you Google, like Google image search, it'd be one of these that you have that like pretty little poster made that you could cut out and print in your, and put in a photo frame in your home. And, and that's okay, right? Nothing wrong if you have photo frames of, of scripture up there. And that's great. But sometimes there are a lot of people who just kind of pull those verses and they don't actually fully see. So that's a part why I want to dig into this. So Matthew chapter 5, the first 12 verses. God's word says, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you, when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here ends our gospel reading for next week. So, just to again review context, Matthew chapter 5 begins what goes on all through the next two chapters even of what's known as Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So, that is significant. Um, Dr. Matthew Gibbs has the commentary um, for Matthew. So, or Jeff Gibbs, sorry. Dr. Gibbs has the commentary on Matthew. So, there's a lot to be said, and he especially talks about the fact that the Beatitudes are really kind of the entryway into the Sermon on the Mount. And I really appreciated that, right? And we'll talk about here as we go more into it, is that the Beatitudes are not a list of laws to be imposed on us. It's not a bunch of exhortation for us to do something, but rather it's more, you could really look at it, and he doesn't use this word, but I think it's fitting, is a, is a declaration on what does God do for us. So I think that's, again, another common misconception is that the Beatitudes can be looked at, oftentimes, as things for us to do. How do we fit in and figure out and, and do it? It's not what we do. It's, again, this is what God is doing for us. And if you consider that, is that God does all this stuff, and we'll get to the stuff, don't worry. does all this stuff in the Beatitudes for you, and that takes us into the Sermon on the Mount, 
That completely can change our view and our, our hearing of the Sermon on the Mount. Because if you just page through your Bibles, the Sermon on the Mount, again, look at the subtitles. They're not scriptural, but they're fair based on what's in Scripture. You get on to topics like anger and lust, divorce, oaths, retaliation, loving your enemies, and I could go on from there. Those are not easy subjects to talk about. But if we consider what God and Christ says to us in the Beatitudes and how blessed we are, it takes us into hearing those, the rest of those words really in a whole different way. So, let's dig in here. Uh, blessed. Uh, this word has been said that it could actually be even translated saved or redeemed. And this is, Dr. Gibbs is really strong on this. Other commentators agree with this. Not necessarily every one of them, but I think that is interesting as we consider this. Because that whole term, well, you know, when someone says, how are you? And some people say, I'm good. I'm proper English. I'm well. I'm making sure to do that one. Um, But you say, I'm blessed. Which is true, and you should still say the same that you are blessed. But here now, let's take even a whole different way on understanding that word. What does it mean to say blessed in this context? Right? If you're thinking, oh, how are you? I'm blessed. It's like, well, God's been with me. He's taking care of me today. I have the things I need. You know, he's, he's helping me. Right? And those are all true. But in this context, to say blessed is, is really even looking more at this. I'm saved. I'm redeemed. Because this is what Christ does for us. So, blessed are the, the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, poor in spirit. Even if we just left out the word poor, which other parts of Scripture sometimes do, that word poor, but we get this description, in spirit, it's just simply talking about those who need to have their, um, their needs, especially their spiritual needs, met by someone other than themselves. Other parts of Scripture, I was talking about this last week in Bible study, uh, I believe it was in Isaiah, it talks about God will lift up the poor. He's not just talking about those who, who don't have money. He's talking about those who who can't meet their own needs. They need another, really, we could say, God to provide for them. But when you have this tagline here that in the spirit, in spirit, it's really talking about their spiritual needs. And isn't that fitting for us? Again, our prideful selves, we don't want to admit it, maybe. But spiritually speaking, we cannot provide for our needs. Spiritually speaking, we cannot provide for our own spiritual needs. Now, again, you can go to Bible study like you're doing. We should keep doing that. We should go to worship, receive his sacrament, hear his word, right? But ultimately, we're not doing those things. That's just putting our plows in a place to receive what God does for us. So poor in spirit really is us. Spiritually, God is the only one who can meet our needs. Are you going to say something or ask something? Yeah, talking about humility to realize that we are poor in spirit, which, yes, I am talking about that, and I think that's a challenging thing, right? And if you think of if the typical Christian, if I'm sitting there on an average day and I'm reading this, and it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, I'm typically not going to think of myself, am I? Probably not, but I can, right? This very much applies to me. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's actually a beautiful gospel statement. When we realize the humility, the, the humble uh, nature I need to have and say, that's me, then move on to the second part. The kingdom of heaven is yours. And that's beautiful gospel right there. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, this one, obviously very fitting with All Saints saying what we've talked about already. Um, 
Mourning, as we know, though, could come from a whole host of things. I think in our society today, right, there's a lot of mourning. And um, I don't know about you, I'm kind of tired of talking about all that in some ways, right? Because like we all have experienced these challenges for like eight months. But the reality is there's still a lot of us and our own brothers and sisters Christ who are mourning different things, whether as teenagers we're mourning what we didn't have or, or as parents or as, as whoever we are, we're all mourning the losses that we have, especially during this COVID challenges, right? But All Saints Day, and we look at this, scripturally speaking, it's not just talking about those mourning um, of these earthly things necessarily, but more really, it is more talking about death. Those who mourn the loss and the death that happens. And it says they'll be comforted, right? Because Christ comforts us in death. Then we go on in verse uh, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Which is very similar um, to what we talked about in the first two, right? The poor in spirit. The meek is really talking about um, those who are powerless. So not necessarily uh, that you're poor in spirit, you're completely lacking there. But now this is another way to say you're powerless, that I can't save myself. Right? So who are the meek? They shall inherit the earth. So again, if you look at this and we realize we come ourselves, I can be considered the meek too. Because I'm powerless to save myself. But I get to inherit the earth. Right? Go on, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and those who thirst for righteousness. Which it really falls. So you got verse 1 through 5 here. Kind of all fall into similar uh, categories. Because again, you have this for righteousness that they hunger and thirst for it and they can't provide for it on their own. So really, if you look at verse 2 through 5, or 3 through 5, I'm sorry, you have a very similar grouping. The spiritual needs that on their own they can't meet. But God blesses them. God saves them. He redeems them. He gives it to them anyways. Then we go on verse 7 through 12. Uh, and some commentators talk about this is more a blessing to the disciples as they're united with Christ. So now this, these blessings take a, a different form, especially as they then live this life out. Verse 7, they're merc- blessed are the merciful, right? The merciful is really describing the disciples. Now, how can we describe disciples of Christ as merciful? Is it based on what they do? Not necessarily. They are merciful. They are called the merciful ones because they've received mercy from God. And then, yes, they do get to show mercy to others. The merciful are those who have received mercy. So, really, if you look at that, again, it's so fitting. The disciples, anyone who follows Christ, you receive his mercy. And, and again, we want to be careful. This isn't an exhortation to tell us, go be merciful to people. Go do a bunch of stuff. It's simply saying, you're blessed. Saved are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And none of this is to say you shouldn't go out and love other people, right? We don't want to become inward focused. Someone once told me, um, what do you call it? Uh, navel, navel-centric. <laughs> he said, it took me forever to understand. He was one of my supervisors on Vicarage. Um, I, I can never understand what he was talking about. It took me multiple times to hear this, but it's just... Your belly button. Look down at yourself. Look into the center of yourself. I was like, all right, now I get it, right? I'm not encouraging us to just be self-centered by no means, nor is scripture. But we to start off on the Beatitudes is not talking about us, go do this stuff. It's like, look at all what God has done for you, and that flows out into everything else. Especially as you get into topics of anger or lust or divorce, right? If you know who you are in Christ and what he's done for you, that completely transforms the way you react with anger 
or lust or divorce or on from there. So, uh, blessed are the pure in heart. Um, again, none of us are pure in heart by our own. Right? Christ makes us pure in heart. Uh, and then verse 9, the peacemakers. Again, talking about the, the disciples taking the message of Christ out into the world. And where does true peace come from? Well, from Christ and proclamation of Christ. And the peacemakers, those who make peace by sharing Christ with others. So blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Then we get into those who are, blessed are those who are persecuted. And I think we've probably talked about this one quite a bit in our time, but... In Scripture, Christ tells us that the reality is, is we will be persecuted. Those who follow Christ will be persecuted. Let's look at what happened to Jesus. Right? He was persecuted far more than any one of us ever could be. And so he tells us it's going to happen. And again, this persecution, we got to make sure, is tied to um, for righteousness' sake. It's not like, well, if you had a hard time in life or you had some challenge. It's who those who are persecuted for Christ's sake. As followers of Christ. So it's, it's a separated from just other, um, other ways in which we could experience trials, but really because in the name of Christ. So, let's stop for a second. Are there questions? Because again, it's kind of a lot. I'm just going to keep going. But, questions on the Beatitudes at all? Yeah, Ruth. Yeah, so the question is the morning back in verse 4. Um, Often been taught as the morning for sin, but now tends to be taught with more all-inclusive. I, I think, not to sound like I'm escaping the question, I think it's both. <laughs> uh, but I, I think it is primarily more of sin and death, I think is the larger force of that morning. I think there are ways to talk about the other, other morning that we experience in our life, but really it all comes back to um, sin and death. And I would say those two simultaneously uh, in the same conversation because, um, well, we know that we, we know that death is because of sin, um, and, but I, I think it is primarily more mourning because of sin and death. But I think if you want to appropriately knowing that, then also look at this scripture and say, well, also you know we still have comfort in Christ no matter what we mourn for. So I wouldn't. I guess a better way to say it is that I wouldn't start with all the other mourning that we could experience in our lives and our earthly thing. I would start with the sin and death, and then after that, and understanding what the scripture is really focused on more so, then we can talk about the other. Right? And that's a great point, especially to think about other parts of scripture, um, or really the, any rest of these beatitudes. We can talk about the. And we, I wanna. I wanted to be very specific, and what do they mean right here and right now, so we understand. But there are also times when then you can also find other, use these to talk about other things in life. And that's true of all, a lot of parts of Scripture. And the fact that you want to understand this core, original context and what it meant and, and what it's really talking about here and there. But then if you're careful, you can use that to talk about other things. Because you just don't want to read your interpretation into it. But I think there are ways to get to other conversations with it. That's a great question, though. Any other questions? Right, thank you. I'm just repeating for others too. Yeah, he's talk, looking back at verse 2, he's talking to, he shows he's talking to the disciples. I love that point, Paul, that he's talking to people who are already in. And again, to emphasize the point that, again, these are not, the Beatitudes are not things to do to get in, but you're already in. And that turns back to then look at the word again. Blessed. 
Right? It's, again, you're saved. It's already, it's a, it's a happened. It's, it's yours. And I love that context that who is it? Right? It's talking to those who are already His. Which could be fitting for Reformation, right? <laughs> the grace instead of the, the works into the thing. But of course to um, All Saints Day as well. Thank you, Paul. Ruth. Yeah, that Christ himself refers to all these. Yeah. Yeah, he does them all perfectly. Yeah, you can talk about that. Absolutely. Um, the other thing I thought back to, kind of to both of those is that with Christ fulfilling these and, and doing them, but then also that these, um, these Beatitudes, again, not as things to do, but they are as statements and God's word that, that continues to create and sustain faith and enables us to keep on going. Right? When we realize, okay, here's Christ talking to us. He's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. We realize, okay, all right, yes, that's me, but I'm already God's and I'll get to keep going because I know the kingdom of heaven is mine. So it also continues to then strengthen us and enable us to keep on going in this calling God's already called us to. Which goes back to 1 John, right? God calls us to be his children, and so we are. And then we go on with the Beatitudes. I didn't plan it for that, but that works out well. The order in which we did that. All right. Um, so we're going to close there in a minute with prayer. So next week we'll... Well, we'll continue with the readings in this class. But next Sunday, as we observe in uh, worship, we'll observe All Saints Day. And um, so we're going to look at this. I'm working on the... I'm, I'm, I'm actually working ahead on a sermon for once, more than the week of. And so working on it. But the, the, the reality is, is next week will be difficult for some people. Because we're talking about mourn, mourning those we've loved. Um, and personally speaking, I've, I lost my father, as you all know, a little under four months ago. So it's difficult It'll be difficult for me, and it probably might be difficult for you, even if it was 40 years ago. I mean, never, loss of someone we love is difficult. And so I want to kind of also recognize that All Saints Day can be very difficult for people, especially as we toll the bell. I mean, there are certain things that can get very emotional, um, but again, we reroute all the things that we do. And that, yes, remembering, and there are still tears, and there's still mourning, but all rooted in the fact that in Christ, we still have that hope in the resurrection and he'll turn, take those tears away, wipe those away. So, let's conclude with a word of prayer. Gracious Father, again I give you thanks for this time in your word with my brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, may you also strengthen my brothers and sisters in Christ who are listening all over the area or country or wherever you have them, Lord. That Lord, we know that all of us are in your hands. That you love us, you care for us. But most especially, Lord, you've called us your own to be your children, to be perfectly loved, perfectly cared for, and perfectly provided for. So, Lord, may you continue to strengthen us in faith, the most precious gift that you have given us, because that gift truly, Lord, gives us the hope and the joy and the comfort that one day, one day we'll be united with all those who believe in you forever in heaven. We look forward to that day, Lord, but until that day, may you strengthen us in faith and sharing that faith with others. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.